0: The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction. You are listening to the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Ghost Lore, an audio fiction anthology. Episode 1 Wilderness. My name is Lindsay Crowe, the editor for this anthology. I've always loved the connection between folklore and the supernatural. Growing up in Scotland, so many of our folktales have elements of hauntings or dark histories. And beyond older myths, everyone grows up with a ghost story or two that are told widely in different variations, so much so that they become local legend. We wanted to capture that variation in this anthology, Stories of strange creatures, spectral figures, lost souls, or unexplained phenomenon. Stories often rooted firmly in place or with the natural world around them. We asked for submissions of tales from around the world, for stories that were heartbreaking, dark, funny, quiet or strange. And those who submitted made it incredibly hard to make final selections. Every story I read for the anthology had something unique about it, and it was a genuine pleasure reading them. And although we couldn't take every story, I hope the call at least helped to inspire new ideas. I'm proud to now present Episode 1 of Ghost Lore, which includes work from 11 authors featuring stories from all around the world that will entertain, frighten, and maybe even stay with you when you're passing through quiet or liminal spaces, in dark woods, on a quiet beach, or simply when listening to the whisper of a breeze. For this episode, all stories have a touch of wilderness and the natural world. There will be goats, trees, deities, witches, mermaids, moors, and more. So sit back, take a moment to listen, and enjoy these beautiful tales. Welcome to Ghost Lore. The first story is "The Goat Herd by Cormac Baldwin, read by Chris Gregory.
1: The mercury in the thermometers had just about frozen when I stepped off the puddle jumper plane. A haze like a desert mirage hung where the stars met the icy tarmac. I stopped for a moment, waited for it to move or dissipate or solidify into some concrete explanation. When it didn't, I made a weak joke about wishing I had hooves to the man behind me and picked my way down. I should have asked about the mist then and there, but the fear of looking like a tourist, entranced by the steam from a vent, kept me silent. The island was one mapmakers took the opportunity to write Farrow Islands over the top of. If you stood on the central hill and there was only one you could see the ocean in every direction if you stood on the central hill the haze would stand with you trust me there was only one I thought I saw more in the smoke curling out of my host family's sod roof or the breeze that toyed with desiccated moss but there was only one haze it took me a month to mention it though I would see it as I took samples from my research. "'That?' asked one of my hosts, an old woman with no teeth but a ready smile. "'That's Loki, driving his goats.' A whip of frigid wind cut me off before I could ask what exactly a god might be doing with goats, and my hostess shooed me inside with a promise of tea. The haze stood as we left. No different in size or shape, yet somehow depleted. The explanation didn't make it go away. In fact, it seemed to get closer, more frantic. No longer a haze, but a cloud of invisible gnats. It didn't wait for me to go outside, either. I could see it outside my window as I typed, getting lost in a sea of graphs and figures. Loki driving his goats as a scraped lichen from bare rocks, Loki driving his goats, as I sent away specimens in amber jars, wrapped in rags and towels, Loki driving his goats. I should have asked that first day, but it wasn't until I had waved my goodbyes that the right question came to me. The haze had followed outside the car as we wound our way to single wide strip of tarmac then waited at the bottom step to the puddle-jumper plane. I walked up to it. Wanted to walk past, but stopped short. Who are you? My breath swirled through it as steam. And for the first time, I saw her. Her wool dress as immaterial as a desert mirage. The hook staff in her hand spoke to where? but not as much as the lines of her face. For a moment I thought I saw her thin lips smile as translucent eyes peered into and through mine. But then she was gone, no more than a figment of early spring warmth. I don't know what or who the haze was, but I don't believe she was ever Loki.
0: The Goat Herd was inspired by an old folk saying in Scandinavia, when mist rises over warming rocks, it was referred to as Loki sowing his oats, or Loki driving his goats. Whether that was the same Loki as the one we know from mythology, well, that's not clear. A Ghosts of Bones and Bark by Alexandra Beaumont Read by Sally Walker Taylor One last
2: breath clawing down your throat its sandpaper rasping rattle stays with me always I left your bones among the roots of our favourite tree buried under the leaves not one mile away you left your spirit within her bark ten years but now frost-laced mist drifts in through the eternally open window. I know what it means. One last call to roam wayward to the tangled trees and find your ghost, one final time. Ten years of your presence is all I bargained for. Trembling hands and churning insides plague me, though I knew this day was looming. My teeth bite into my lips spilling warm blood from my flesh, salty on my tongue, like raw fish. I catch myself trying to shake the tug of mist from my mind and stop myself, like I tried to stop you fading from this world. With a candle flickering in my grasp and eyes wide in the red dawn light, I begin my march to the trees. The path to your ghost tree is lined with rotting moss. Stabs of pungent petrichor burning my lungs. The air is too close. Only when my feet reach the base of your tree can I breathe free again. Couldn't you have made this path more pleasant, Mother? Or is it the other ghosts that cause the pinpricks of terror to creep up my skin? I twine my fingers into the leaves, your leaves, never gripping tight. You're wrapped in ivy from branch to roots, save for the gap into your tree's hollow. If your bones are cracked under the roots, it doesn't stop me feeling you here. Three familiar steps, and I'm in the cavity of the empty trunk with you. Hands pressed on the inside of the bark, I listen. Gentle whispers swirl round me in the mist, your voice cradled like a bairn in the branches. Whispering leaves echo through my mind. You slowly push vines into each corner of my awareness. I've waited for this. Now we are the bark. And now I must surrender. (sighs) A gushing energy, your love and raging sorrow flung at me, intense and sudden, like a river surging through our tree's roots. (sighs) The gentle sway of our bowers in the wind lulls me, until you and I are one again. Our eyes are raining. Our breathing falters. One last breath. The tree breathes for us. Deep, slow, heavy breaths. And I'm not sure where I start and the tree ends. No longer alone. I am the child of the tree. Our leaves warm slightly. Every vein in them stretching to feel the sun, quivering in anticipation. We cradle cocoons with leafy fingers, a nurturing love. Feel sorrow when they break apart, but joy and hope for the colourful creature who flutters forth. Deep in the earth, worms wind hither and thither, weaving over our roots. Dead beetles rest below carcasses crumbling away, huge shells dropping into the dust around your skeleton. Our roots strengthen as it decays. Now you are a font for nature. Woodpecker makes his home. We speak. We ask him not to take too much of our body away. The thanks he gives patters through every patch of bark he clings to. The tiny hammer of his beak A song of gratitude for what you gave him when you haunted this tree. We flex our roots, stretch limbs out further, creeping ever deeper. Through roots, we hear all our brethren, from mountain down to shore. All night I listen, your voice thrumming in my ears. Daughter, daughter. daughter, daughter. Let Let yourself yourself be be free. Morning. Dew drips over every part of us. Rivulets run between cracks in our aged bark skin. Night has left a toll as we made a bed for bugs and birds, and wind ripped at our branched arms frost has silvered our flesh, until rising rays of heat gives pleasure as light breaks through our canvas. We quiver, not in pleasure, but in fear, for we know this is our final moment together. A thousand leaves shudder as you thrust me from the tree, my body trembling on the bracken floor. Go! I hear you wail again and again. Go! I gently lift our embracing vines, breath stroking every leaf as I remove the ivy snagged around my ankles and step free from the tangled mess. Goodbye, I say. The whisper is sandpaper rough in my throat. For days we were as one, But already, your ghost is fading. Your eyes leak sap and rainwater. I am gone, like a branch severing from your trunk. A spiral of pollen swirls upward from your leaves. Your one last breath. And now, you are lost to me.
0: The folkloric inspiration for this piece was the connection and importance of trees to people in old Celtic beliefs, especially as some trees were believed to have links to the spirit world. Sing sorrow to the sea and the waves will answer. Written and read by myself, Lindsay Crowell. Stand barefoot, toes sinking into soft sand, and sing your sorrows to the sea. It goes like this. A breath, slow and deep, then exhale the notes into the wind. Harmonise your sadness with the ebb of water. Let your staccato ooze into the swelling waves, until it becomes a secret only the water knows and keeps. You asked the sea once for a wish, while swimming under midnight stars, the moon a crescent grin above. The sea tugged at your pain, dissolved your worries, then whispered back, a deal was struck. So now you sing your sorrow to the sea, and the waves will answer. Your voice echoes. Distant as if heard through a shell, ghost-like. And the waves lap it up. Every note, every melody, every octave of your sorrow, stored deep in indigo depths. You walk away, unburdened, free. But sometimes, when you walk by the coast on a quiet night, you'll hear the lilting tones, a chorus of ghost voices, one of them yours, transformed into something beautiful, of sorrows lost and forgotten. There is only one thing the sea asks in return, that when time has passed and the sea sings of its own sorrow, when pain is dredged up on its shores, that you stop, listen, listen and answer its call.
1: The smiling folk. I want to tell you about the smiling folk and the circle in the woods and what I did. But first, my brother. My brother punches me in the arm. It hurts, but he's done worse. Done worse to me. Done worse to the girl at school whose arm he broke because she wouldn't kiss him. You're pathetic, he says, still scared at twelve. I look at him. Two years my senior, may as well be ten. He's tall, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested. I am weak, tiny-limbed, frail. He is brute force. I love books. No surprise that I'm his plaything. He grabs my arm, right where he punched it. I try not to flinch despite the pain. We're going now. Going where? I ask. Where do you think, ball brain? To the circle. To the one you're so scared of. Time you acted like a man. Like you, I think. Killing birds for fun. Squirrels. My parents found out about that. I heard them arguing. Mum said it was like my uncle all over again. Said it's genetic. Dad told her to shut up. That he's nothing like that. I don't know what my uncle did, but that's the first time they've mentioned him, and I've never actually seen him. So, we start walking down the woodland path that leads to the circle. The dying day's sun sends shafts through the trees as the path narrows. Soon we're off the path and climbing over roots. The trees grow tighter here, grasping at us as we push on despite their warnings. "'Are you scared yet?' my brother says, grinning. "'Why would I be scared?' "'Because you believe. "'You believe in the smiling folk.' "'Do you even know the story?' I reply, dodging a knotted root. "'Are you saying I'm stupid?' "'He punches me in the gut, winding me, then continues. "'I don't need to read a library to know the story of the circle.' Of the smiling folk who live beyond it, in their own world. How, if you get too close, they take you and replace you with their own kind who look just like you. Not completely like you, I reply, rubbing my midriff. Their grin, it's too wide. That's why they're the smiling folk. We walk on. Finally, the branches, so thick now, that the dying sun gave up long ago trying to peek through them. The circle is in front of us. It's not impressive. Five boulders, each two feet high, ringed around a small mound of earth in the middle. It's hardly Stonehenge, but the air feels colder here. And when you mention it to people in our village, they go quiet. Especially the old ones. Go on then. He says, triumphant. Touch the mound. See if you get replaced. I don't want to. Go on, or you'll get worse than before. You don't have to be like this, I say, one last try. You don't have to be like this all your life. Now, or you'll bleed. I shrug. I walk to the mound I stand on it he looks surprised at my boldness there's a rune set into a rock next to the mound I touch it it glows then I speak into the twilight air I'm here like I said I brought him for you if you're making fun of me I'll break your legs says my brother I ignore him The boulders around the mound glow softly my brother backs away he's the one scared now the last thing I see of him is his confused expression that's new I could get used to it then as he backs into the trees welcoming arms something stands up behind him he turns round and there's a sucking sound like air rending for a second I hear another world, a loud one, an unpleasant one. And then my brother starts to scream and the sucking sound ends with a pop. He steps into the circle, reborn. The walk back is a happy one. The shadows are long, but I'm not scared anymore. I'm smiling. I look at my brother, he's smiling too. The widest grin you ever did see.
0: Chris Gregory was reading The Smiling Folk by E. L. Crocker. Next, we have a short excerpt from Mischief Acts from Zoe Gilbert, read by Sally Walker-Taylor. Bear Man
2: was waiting.
0: You too he said.
2: If you wish to hunt again, the stables, both of you. We walked, his cold hands to the back of our necks, his cold fingers sending ice down to our hearts. We roused the horses, we roused the hounds. All our beasts were horribly ready, rearing despite the hour, mouths frothing, Feet pouring, but all the men, dour. John, Curlet, Omondon, Robert, and the rest. Curlet snarled. Robert turned his back when Bearman swung the stable door wide. The great oak, he said, will forever be made fools before your king. John's horse reared up. For my skill, he cried. And so be it. The hounds led the way into the night. As if in a nightmare, Ern stood. He filled the wood with a kind of glamour, made his own moon to light that demon crown of his, to light the length of rope that trailed still from his neck. The hounds huddled down, Hearn crooned to them, to our mounts, and to us in our nightmare said, in a hoarse whisper that deafened, a whisper that filled with dread, The hunt is on. All night we would ride, all beasts we would find and slaughter. We would trample the plantings, slash the saplings, stamp down hedges and break the Ronald's bridges. We would wreck the King's wood. Wreck ourselves. Hearn, the King's angel of the hunt. Now demon. Hearn, antlered, magicked from the great oak, dead and risen. Dead and risen once more. It was Robert who spoke. Friend, he said, This is Bearman's curse. Let us take it up with him. May you rest. We heard the raven's call in the Great Oak's branches. We heard Hearns laugh too long, too cold. The hunt is on, he said. And so it
0: was. The excerpt you heard was from Zoe Gilbert's new novel Mischief Acts, which was published by Bloomsbury on 17th of March. We'll post a link so you can order Mischief Acts and Zoe's acclaimed debut novel Folk in the show notes for this podcast. You can hear Zoe talking about the art of telling stories inspired by folklore in a special podcast which we broadcast at the end of Season 5 of Alternative Stories. We'll link to it in the show notes. Zoe also teaches writers about using folklore in their work with London Lit Lab. You can find more details by searching London Lit Lab or via Zoe's Twitter feed. If you are enjoying this edition of
3: Alternative Stories and Fake Realities – Please consider subscribing in your favourite podcast app to have new editions delivered to you the moment they are released. You'll also have access to our full archive of audio drama, poetry and fiction podcasts. We always appreciate ratings and reviews, preferably in Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. These help to raise the profile of our podcast, allowing more people to listen and more content
0: to be produced. God is neither man nor ghost. By Jessica Sakamoto Martini, read by Mary claire Wood
3: In the latter days, people will paint trees on the dusty ground, spread their arms wide to mimic the flight of birds, ask children to cry to fill the empty hollows of lakes. Plastic bags will float in the air like pollen and white jellyfish. In the latter days, people will stand still at crossroads, waiting for someone or something to point a way forward. But no animal will show up to carry them to a king's castle, so people will turn to their ancestors to receive hope and wisdom. But only the ghosts will be there, wailing in high-pitched voices, to return one last time. In the latter days, the living and the dead will all come together as a spinning mob. People to ghosts, ghosts to people. There will be no stories to tell. Conversations will drop in mid-air. The echo will be overwhelming. All will look for a place to rest, and for a god to beg for forgiveness. In the latter days, perhaps on the very last day, Someone will say they saw God walking among them, bent low, trembling from the heat of the moon and the cold of the sun. Others will swear they saw God among the ghosts, hungry and thirsty. The truth is, in the latter of days, no one will remember that God was neither man nor ghost, but he was among the last blades of grass, the last drops of water the last living creatures that they trampled upon.
0: God is neither man nor ghost, is inspired by a strong sense of place. It is a warning against the loss of connection and exile that occurs when we forget the ability to feel love and belonging for the natural world around us. Birth Story, written and read by Maria S. Piccone. Lightning spears fractured Mother Han's flesh. She
3: lifted her Tima and birthed me into the Nakdong River. My fingers brushed dirt, rocks, sand as I sped south, a comet's tail of blood marking my passing. I gave up, opened my body's logic to the water. The sound of waves crashing on waves. quishing, Existential scream. Floating above the Pacific Ocean, I met other children riding the wind, friends sharing smiles, tears. I saw the multitude of lands that hugged them close. Drifting, drifting, I relinquished the rage that held me aloft. My body reclaimed. I stepped forward into new life.
0: This story is a subverted interpretation of Gwishin, a type of Korean ghost, usually motivated by a desire for revenge, whose strong will lets them stay on Earth until they complete a task.
1: Your name repeated. Whispers in the tall grass call your name. You've plumped your ears with cotton, and still the voice follows you. It's in the leaves and the fields, and it bites at your heels, rushes around your skull, sticks to you like melted candy. Like truffles and treacle tart, Toffee apples, toasted marshmallow. Everything that covered your fingers and dripped from your chin while you grinned and swooned and sweated, smiling up at her as the sugar rush hit you in waves. She welcomed you without question and you drowned in her chocolate for days. The bitter sweetness a salve to the pain rotting inside you. She smiled at you and got a little bit smaller with each bite you took. You gorged on her kindness, the kindness of the witch. And now you run, keep running, your heart a furnace, your chest on fire, burning hot as the flames that wrap, flickering white tongs around her house. Her house, ransacked by your hunger, but your limbs are sluggish, The air is syrup around you. In the distance, the silhouette of a place called home shimmers on the horizon. Pinpricks of tiny windows glitter warm and beckoning, but a darkness in the sky bears down low, hunches over the landscape, pushes you down and down until your nose near scrapes the soil and you taste grass and dirt in your mouth. Now you crawl, You hadn't meant to keep eating. Each mouthful was an invitation to the next. Each morsel unraveled a kaleidoscope of taste that promised endless joy and relentless wonder. And so, bite followed bite followed bite. The witch shriveled. You watched her shrink through a cloud of sickly euphoria. Like a prune then a raisin, then a desiccated husk, hollow and translucent. You took what you wanted. Sugar made your brain fizz as you gorged until you had exhausted her completely. Only her faded smile left lingering. A ghost. And still you sucked on that. The shreds of her like threads of spun sugar melting on your tongue. The smile... Gone. The kindness. Gone. Used up on your brackish soul that wanted more, demanded more, more honeyed gold, more candid cure to coal of thorns that grow deep and eager in the pit of your stomach. And as surely as milk curdles in the sun, sugar turned to shame and it was a small thing, really, to gather kindling, to set a spark... To cover the carcass of your guilt. The witch is dead. Now on your knees, retching, reaching forwards, your name swirls in a gasping chant. Wind scratching at it, flinging it into a thousand pieces that prickle your skin and claw at your hair. The words coil around you, abstract now. You can no longer tell where your name begins and where it ends a collection of primal sounds that rumble and howl and the voice. It's inside you, hushed, but getting hotter. The house burns, white, then crimson and purple. Black smoke billows in its own acrid storm and chases you down, scatters you with ash, ash in your eyes and your skin, melting into your cold sweat the The witch witch is is dead you say the words out loud as if this might make it more real a statement not a question but your voice disappears snatched away from your dry lips by the wind and you know in that moment that the saying of a thing does not make a whole truth to be dead is not always death itself And so the wind tells you. Sometimes kindness becomes rage. The voice no longer whispers, but screams so loud your eyes water and your bones rattle. It pierces through your insipid fear, fills you up with a rage that's both foreign to you and of your own making. It pushes through your insides, bursts from your mouth in a torrent of spittle and ash. The witch is dead, dead. but her rage haunts the wind and stalks to the horizon. One by one, the lights snuff out in the place called home. Now your name falls from human mouths in sombre houses, shaded by morning. And it is only ever uttered as a curse.
0: Your name repeated by Tamara Rogers, was read by Chris Gregory. The story was loosely inspired by Hansel and Gretel. There is an Instinct by Melinda Salisbury is read by Sally Walker Taylor. She isn't
2: meant to be in the river. She knows better than to go there. But the sparlings thrash and quiver, so she can't help but follow them upstream, swimming against the tide. She waits all year for this. Normally she bides out beyond the harbour to catch them before they enter the estuary, but not this year. This year the fish came early, or she came late, and the fact of the matter is she's in the river now. And there is blood in the water all around her. She can taste it. And it tastes good. There is an instinct in predators that is impossible to override. A frenzy that comes over them when they're in the killing zone. Emotions so aroused that nothing, nothing at all can stop what will happen next. She is in the frenzy. Darting through the shoal, grabbing fish in spindled fingered hands and biting down, swallowing. She is still, at this point in time, a predator. The Sparlings are in a frenzy too, but it's reproduction that drives them. A different kind of arousal that urges them to leap and writhe, to keep moving on, on, on. To the fishermen on the boats rowing towards them, it seems as if the river is boiling. And beneath the surface, the roiling mass of fish hides the boat's approach. The fish aim to swim upstream to spawn. The mermaid aims to catch as many of them as she can. In this, she and the fishermen are aligned. Their plan is the same, to fill the nets they lower into the river with silvery fish. They work in tandem, two boats each holding one end of a net, sweeping through the water and capturing everything in its path. She isn't meant to be in the river. She isn't meant to be in the net. She doesn't speak their language, so she doesn't know what they're saying when they haul her out of the water and into a boat. A sea bride, veiled with silver sparlings. She can't understand their expressions, their shouts. A man draws a cross on himself. Then the others do. But she doesn't know what that means because there is no God, no church under the surface, only water and darkness, and she would give anything to be back there now, pay any price. There is an instinct in prey that's impossible to override, a desperation to stay alive at any cost, to claw and fight and beg. Back on land, the fishermen drop her into the quay and she tries to escape, digging her long fingers into the ground. Dragging herself back to the sea. Human hands touch her, hot and calloused, her tail, her fins, her chest, plucking and grabbing and squeezing. They are rough and mean, both frightened and enraptured by her. But she doesn't know this. She only knows pain and fear. They lift her, and there is a wild, wild second where she thinks they will release her. And she vows she will never, ever go into the estuary again. Not for the sparlings, not for anything. But then the men turn, heading away from the water, and her gills are fluttering, fighting hard to breathe. And although she doesn't know what death is, not like humans do, something deep inside her understands that if she doesn't get back to the sea soon... She will die. She will die. With her final breaths, she curses the town. Curses it to forever pay a price for her life. The malediction mouthed at men who laugh at her, gasping on the steps of the town hall. Who don't understand that she's speaking at all. That realisation will come later. With the fires, and the plagues, and the hunger, and the soldiers, and the many, many, many deaths. The people of the town will hear something like laughter echoing across the harbour. Like water through rushes. Like the last breaths of a dying thing. And they will soon learn that it means something bad is coming. And coming soon the heirs of the fishermen will trace back the beginning of their misfortune to this, to her, turning grey and limp in a net that's been mended almost too many times. The cruelest irony is that once she is gone, they give her back to the sea, no longer sure what else to do with her.
0: There Is An Instinct as based on the tale of the Conway Mermaid from Welsh lore, who cursed the town after being pulled from the sea. Her laughter, if heard, is now an omen for disaster. Melinda was one of our invited authors for this anthology and is the best-selling author of numerous young adult fantasy novels, and her next young adult book, Her Dark Wings, will be released in July 2022. Mama
3: always tells me not to be out on the marsh after dark. Now the sun is sinking and she won't let me back inside. The door is locked and the curtains are drawn, but I know she's in there. I can hear her crying still. And where else would she go? It's all marsh, all around our house, and it's getting dark. She'll stay inside because she's afraid of the hobby lanterns. That's what she calls them flickering lights that hover over the muck and mire. I always thought it was a silly name and Mama shouldn't be scared. I followed them out into the marsh one evening even though I wasn't supposed to. They showed me their secret. The lights are getting closer now. They're all coming up towards the house. She must see them too because she's shouting for them to go away. I want to tell her that they're not so bad once you get to know them just kids, like me, if you know how to see their faces. She's weeping that they took her child, but they didn't. I'm right here. I do wish she'd stop screaming. I have a secret to show her.
0: The Hobby Lanterns, by Cat Valer was read by Marie Claire Wood. This story was inspired by, as the title suggests, hobby lanterns in European folk belief, the phenomenon of ghostly lights appearing over bogs, myrrhs and marshes, often said to mislead travellers. These lights are known by many names, including commonly the will o the wisp. Our final story in episode one is Spring Hollow Secret God Sleeping by Lorraine Wilson, read by Sally Walker-Taylor. A story inspired by Wicca and pagan traditions.
2: Bring withy willows with you to weave a net. Tonight, when the moon rides high, we will catch her face in the black mirror water at our feet. Dance widdishins and threefold, so our withies weave moonlight all around. Bring silver sage and silver blades and your hair hanging down. Your green ivy crown is night-rendered, a wreath of black hands holding all your dreams. We burn the sage and watch it drift to ashes fine as sadness on the water, white on black, and the moon watching smoke and dream webs. Then barefoot we stand hushed, our breaths herb-scented, the black water holding still as ice as glass and a heart lying quietly. The water sleeps, the moon waits. We have woven our bodies along our danced line between moonlight and water, smoke and darkness, memory and forgetting. We have woven ourselves tight and now raise our cradled hands to fill with silver light and all the wishes spoken to no one but the dark grave and ourselves. We fill our cupped palms with them. The water waits. The forest breathes us darkly. Now bring the silver blades, reflecting the moon and us three like half-forgotten dreams. We are nothing but our hearts unravelling. Silver parts us from ourselves, skin from skin. Body from blood. Some falls into the black eye of the water and the rest stays behind. Bring the breath in your lungs and the blood of your heart. Bring memory and the black cat singing and your own two hands that washed the body clean. Bring the dark, the moon, the dreams you cradled. Give it all to the water. Our flesh is woven into the night. Held by the moon because we held her dancing. are everything else we give to the water. This pool that is an empty doorway and the cavities of a heart. The water is sleeping. Dream feeding on our morning. Our scented ashes. Our blood. Dream feasting. Waking. The moon's mirrored smile wavers. The water tastes of smoke and salt and darkness. Waking. Now, now for the wishes we fed it, our dark fury and our unforgiving. We make payments in blood and silver and we wait, guarded by the moon. So now, water, now, spring hollowed secret god sleeping in the forest, now we have woken you. And now we ask for our wishes made true. Ghost wishes as the moon rides high. Blood wishes and grief honed sharply. Revenge. Revenge. Revenge.
0: for listening to Ghost Lore, an audio fiction anthology. Episode 1, Wilderness. Episode 2, Hauntings, will be released on Friday the 1st of April. We look forward to welcoming you then for more stories inspired by the folklore of the supernatural. Our readers for this episode were Sally Walker-Taylor, Mary-Claire Wood, Chris Gregory, and Maria Espaconi. Sound design, editing, and soundscapes were by Chris Gregory with sound effects from freesound.org. Information about and links for all of our contributors are included in the show notes for this podcast. If you've enjoyed this edition of the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast, please subscribe in your favourite podcast app to have access to our full archive of over 100 podcasts. You'll also have new editions delivered directly to your podcast feed as they are released. We always appreciate ratings and reviews, especially in Apple Podcasts, Podchaser and Spotify. These help to raise the profile of the podcast and allow more listeners to find us. If you've enjoyed this edition, you might like to check out our other folklore-related podcasts. We've produced several audio dramas inspired by stories from folklore, as well as discussion editions on the folklore of animals and on the lore of stone circles and standing stones. Listen out for more soon. My name is Lindsay Cole, and you've been listening to the Alternative Stories podcast. The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction.